All right, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out. About, well, now more than 10 years ago, my colleague Joe Kruzel was killed in Bosnia. And when I became director, we created a series in his honor. And one of Joe's great interests was to have people in the academy be connected to people in the policy world. And that was certainly Joe's aspiration. And so every year we try to bring someone who has really been in both worlds, a very successful academician who's published a lot, made a lot of impact on the international academic world, but at the same time has been in the policy system and done a lot in terms of making policy. And no one is a better example of that than Joe Nye. So I know Joe Kruzel would be especially pleased. This is the 11th Kruzel lecture, so I'm really glad to open it. Joe Nye is a distinguished professor of international relations at Harvard University. He's also the former dean of the Kennedy School. Having done a lot of introductions, I've learned there's some people you can spend a lot of time introducing, and there's others that are so famous you don't need to spend too much time. And many of you have come here because you know perfectly well what Joe Nye has done. He's published numerous books. He's introduced some concepts like soft power that have been very widely picked up. He's served in government in a number of roles. He's been assistant secretary of defense for national security affairs. He's been chair of the National Intelligence Council. He's been deputy undersecretary of state for security assistance, science, and technology. And today he's going to talk about his newest book, The Powers to Lead, which is just coming out. So without further ado, Joe Nye. Thank you, Rick. And it's a uh, it's an honor for me to be here at Mershon today, uh, not only because of the excellence of the reputation of the Mershon Center, uh, but because of the memory of Joe Krusel, uh, who is such an important figure here. I'll tell you a quick story before I get to the topic. Uh, when I served in the Pentagon uh, as Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs, Joe Krusel was my deputy for European affairs. And um, he was terrific. Uh, anybody who knew him realized that this was a man of keen intelligence, deep commitment, a nice sense of humor, just a, a wonderful person. And he was very dedicated to the idea of trying to bring an end to the fighting in Bosnia. Uh, he spent enormous effort on this. Uh, in August, of 1995, I decided I was going to leave the Pentagon and go back to become dean of the Kennedy School at Harvard. And I called Joe um, and said, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I'm going to recommend to the Secretary of Defense that you should be my successor. Uh, that's the mark of the confidence I have in you. And um, the next I heard... Uh, on the weekend was that Joe had been killed when the armored personnel carrier that he was in, which was following a tortuous road to avoid sniper fire from Bosnian Serbs, tumbled over a cliff and they, three people in it were killed. Um, needless to say, that was uh, devastating news for me personally, but for the Defense Department, indeed, for the country and for the Academy. And I was touched when I came down in the foyer here and saw the picture of Joe Krusel, 
because if you go into the Kennedy School at Harvard, you will see the same picture. And I put it there in memory of the example that Joe Krusel has set for future students. So it's particularly meaningful for me, meaningful for me to be here today to give a lecture in honor of Joe Krusel. What I'd like to talk to you about is power and types of power, how they affect the United States internationally, how they affect our leadership. And I was, I'll start by saying that, uh, giving you a little sort of instant history. If you look at uh, Secretary of State Clinton's testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for her confirmation hearings, she used the term smart power. And smart power is the ability to combine hard and soft power into successful strategies. And that particularly intrigued me because it's been a while before we've been able to admit uh, that there's something called soft power in terms of American political discourse. I was once told by a uh, congresswoman, a very smart congresswoman, who said, you know, soft power is tremendously important, but we dare not speak its name because in American politics, you have to be tough. You have to be macho. And even if it's analytically important, it's politically a loser. Uh, that's true in American political discourse. It's also has been true until the rise of constructivism, at least, is a theory or approach in international politics. It's been true of much of international relations theory. If you look at the rise of neorealism in the 1980s, power was all tangible, hard, measurable things. And this led to a rather truncated view of where America is in the world and what power means. In fact, I came up with this term soft power in 1989 when I was writing a book which uh, was about the theory of that the United States was in decline. Uh, at that time, uh, as you may or may not remember, uh, it was widely believed that the United States was finished. Indeed, uh, Paul Kennedy, my friend in and colleague at Yale uh, wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which got on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, I wrote a book, or was trying to write a book to disagree with him that the United States was finished, that I thought the U.S. would be the leading country of the 21st century. Uh, I think I got the answer right, but Paul got all the royalties. <laughs> and the public opinion polls showed that. Now, what's interesting is that um, if you think about power, power is a pretty straightforward concept. We use it all the time, even though it's sometimes misused and misdefined. But power is the ability to affect others to get the things you want. And there are basically three ways you can do that. You can do it with coercion, sticks. You can do it with inducements, payments, carrots, 
or you do it with attraction to get people to want what you want. And if you can get people to want what you want, you don't have to spend as much on carrots and sticks. And it seems to me a fairly simple and straightforward uh, concept. But when I was writing this book in 1989, trying to assess whether American power was indeed in decline or not, um, I totaled up what I thought was the balance of American military power, American economic power, resources. And I said, you know, there's still something missing, which is the ability of the Americans to attract others, to affect their preferences. And somehow, as we do these assessments, we miss that. And that's where I came up with this concept of soft power. Now, it took a while for that concept to be accepted, either uh, in the profession or in political dialogue. Indeed, I remember giving a talk to a group of, of uh, army generals at a conference of the army in 2003 in Washington, and the, uh, uh, some of the generals seemed to understand it. Indeed, I think the military caught on more quickly than the, than the civilians. In the afternoon or evening speaker, that uh, I spoke in the morning, the evening speaker was Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense. And one of the generals, uh, somewhat foolishly, I expect, for his career, asked Rumsfeld what he thought of soft power. And Rumsfeld's comment is, I don't understand it. And that has been part of our problem. Uh, but think of the progress from that statement by a Secretary of Defense to the statement made by Secretary of Defense Bob Gates in Kansas in 2007, in which he said, there's something wrong with our foreign policy. We have invested far too much in our hard power we need to invest more in our soft power. That from the Secretary of Defense. He went on to say that it might seem odd for the head of the Pentagon to plead for more resources for the State Department, but these were indeed extraordinary times. In 2007, Richard Armitage uh, and I co-chaired a commission called the Smart Power Commission uh, which was a bipartisan group designed to try to outline what a new foreign policy would look like that combined hard and soft power successfully. And that led me to be quite happy when I heard Secretary of Clinton talking about smart power as the theme for the new administration's foreign policy. So there has been some progress uh, in terms of an understanding of the different forms of power and the need to combine them into smart strategies. It's interesting, though, to ask, is this a concept with just about international relations, or is it applicable more broadly? And in the book that Rick mentioned that uh, I just published uh, last year called The Powers to Lead, takes these concepts of hard, soft, and smart power and applies them to international leadership. I'm sorry, to, to, to every kind of leadership, and then you can apply it back to international leadership. So what I'd like to talk to you about today is a little bit about how we think of leadership not 
as in my earlier books, Leadership of the United States and the World, but the leaders we choose, who runs us, uh, what are leaders, how do you judge them, and so forth. And I think in general that our discourse about leadership is still very much uh, captured by what I call the big man theory of leadership or the big man approach to leadership. And I use that term advisedly. Um, if you ask what's wrong with the big man theory of leadership, uh, some people will say it, it is a simple, measurable fact that for American males, an extra inch of height is worth an extra $800 of income per year. So, you know, there's, isn't that support for the big man theory of leadership? Of course, any of you who think clearly about uh, uh, causation realize that that could be spurious, just like we see a lot of fire engines around fires. We don't think fire engines cause fires. Similarly, it may be that we pay people because they look like leaders, not because they are leaders. Uh, but in any case, it's something that doesn't fit very well historically. If you look at, uh, if you look at history, some of the most uh, influential leaders you can think of have been a little over five feet tall. I think of Napoleon, Stalin, and Deng Xiaoping. Uh, so that's one reason to be cautious about the big man theory of leadership. But there are some who defend it on sociobiological grounds. They say, if you look at humans, we are 98.8% the same genetically as chimpanzees. And when you look at how chimpanzees organize their social life, there's always a dominant alpha male leader. And that, they argue, uh, the sociobiologists argue, is carried through to us humans. I mean, we can't escape that common genetic background with chimpanzees. But the trouble with that is that it's never been possible to identify a leadership gene. Nobody's ever found one. And tests that are done on fraternal identical twins which is the way you often test for genetic differences because of the 100% or 50% sharing of genetic materials, show that uh, in terms of leadership positions, about one-third of the difference can be accounted for by genetics, and two-thirds is non-genetic. So the score is nurture two, nature one, on that count. But even more interesting for these people who try to argue about a human leadership from our common chimpanzee ancestors is the bonobos, which is a type of chimpanzee, a slightly smaller type of chimpanzee that live in the eastern Congo that, uh, uh, but are about genetically as close to us as other chimpanzees. And the interesting thing about bonobos is that they have female dominance. Now, half of you are shaking your head this way and half of you going like that, but it's a fact. And uh, what it does is suggests that the sociobiology arguments about the big man theory of leadership are also deficient. 
Indeed, if you look at some of the work that's written about uh, leadership in the business world, you'll find that there's an increased emphasis on the fact that in a, today's business world, uh, networks are becoming more important than hierarchies. That the 19th century image of the firm, uh, you know, downward orders in a manufacturing plant, is very different from the internet connected, just in time inventory connected, modern corporation which spans, let's say, a hundred nationality, national jurisdictions. And that means that in that kind of a world, particularly a world in which knowledge workers become critically important, uh, you need to think of leadership in different ways. Instead of the boss and top of the head of the steel plant who's king of the mountain, uh, you're thinking of somebody who's in the center of the circle and has to attract people to the center of the circle. And that leads to an emphasis on increased importance of soft power. If soft power essentially is attraction power, then this network view of the world means that you're going to have an increased role in soft power. Now, this doesn't mean it's all either one or the other, but the mix is changing as our societies are changing. Now, sometimes people take this one step further and say, if it's a networked world and soft power is becoming more important, then maybe it's a woman's world. Maybe essentially the male hierarchical command type leadership is obsolete because women seem to intuit soft power better than men, that they have a better capacity of networking, of nurturing, of attracting, and so that we're going to see finally women at the top of the leadership positions in the world. Now, there's something in that. Um, Alice Eagley, who is a sociologist at uh, Northwestern, has done some studies which show two things. One is that soft power is becoming more important in management. And second, that women do tend to be better at soft power than men. But I think there's a danger of gender stereotypes. If all we do is replace the old gender stereotypes with new gender stereotypes, we're missing what's important, which is it doesn't do any good to stand the big man on its head and create a woman's world. We need to realize that in some contexts, men need to act more like women, in quotes, and women need to act more like men. So rather than use these gender stereotypes, what I've tried to do in this new book is identify what are the critical soft power skills that a leader needs, whether male or female, and what are the critical hard power skills they need, and then how do they put them together in smart strategies, what I call contextual intelligence. So what I would like to do is to outline for you uh, these three key hard soft power skills, two key hard power skills, 
and then say something about context and contextual intelligence. I think that probably the most important of the soft power skills is what psychologists call emotional IQ or emotional intelligence. Now, traditional IQ, uh, you're all familiar with. Everybody who's here wouldn't be here if you hadn't done well on a certain type of test uh, that measures traditional IQ. But basically, it's tests that show how well you do in the French school system of 1890. And when, you know, mathematics, uh, basic verbal skills, spatial skills, and so forth. But when psychologists have tried to say, how well does a high IQ, as traditionally measured, correlate with success later in life by a variety of measures, they find that it can account for about 20% of the variance. So 80% of, in quotes, success is something besides what we traditionally measure as IQ. Now, that may be a blow to some of you, but uh, that also is something that's been substantiated by a number of studies. Now, among the 80% of variance unaccounted for, part of it, not all of it, is what psychologists call emotional IQ. And emotional IQ is the mastery of oneself and outreach to attract others. Perhaps the easiest way to illustrate this would be the famous story about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Holmes, as you remember, was a crusty old veteran of the Civil War, and when he was first introduced to FDR, people asked him, what did you think of the new president? And Holmes said, second-class intellect, but first-class temperament, which is another way of saying very high emotional IQ. Now contrast Roosevelt, as described by Holmes, but also by other biographers subsequently, with Richard Nixon, who probably would have outscored Roosevelt on a classic IQ test by far, but who was severely deficient in emotional IQ, the mastery of self and the ability to use it to reach out to others. And it's clear how important emotional intelligence is as a soft power skill. The second soft power skill which a leader, male or female, needs is a sense of vision. And a vision is simply a picture of the future that gives meaning and inspires others to follow, to be attracted, to move forward. Um, but an effective vision has to have a balance between realism and inspiration. Uh, you can have lots of visions which are wish lists, but unless they have a way to engage people and move them towards something that's achievable, they don't do much good. And here it's interesting to compare the two Bush presidencies. Bush 41 was famous for saying he didn't do the vision thing, but I would argue had quite a successful foreign policy in spite of it. Bush 43, in reaction, stressed the importance of his vision, used very Wilsonian rhetoric in his second inaugural address. But his vision of transforming the Middle East by invading Iraq and coercively democratizing it was grandiose 
rather than grand. So vision has to not merely be inspirational. It also has to be realistic and inspiring at the same time. The third of the soft power skills I'll enumerate is communications. We usually think of communications in terms of rhetoric. Uh, indeed, if we think of uh, Martin Luther King and his ability to use the cadences and vocabulary of the African-American church, uh, brilliant communication reaching out far beyond just one community to a much broader community. But it's worth remembering that rhetoric is not the only form of communication. Indeed, psychologists tell us that more than half of human communication is nonverbal, not verbal. And therefore, it's very important to look at nonverbal communication skills. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen a film of Mahatma Gandhi speaking. What struck me the first time I saw such a film is what a poor speaker he was. Here is somebody who was known as one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, and he's not a very good speaker. But he was a brilliant nonverbal communicator. Compare a picture of Gandhi when he returns from London as the British lawyer in the three-piece suit and the necktie all buttoned up, and Gandhi, the nationalist leader in the 1920s, dressed in a simple peasant's cloth, leading a salt march to the sea that takes weeks to get there so that the tension can build and, the, and people can watch the slow progress before he's finally arrested for making sort. salt. A brilliant example of nonverbal communication. And the effective, the most effective leaders in terms of soft power are those who know how to combine verbal and nonverbal communication. To give you one more example, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. When Lawrence goes to the Versailles Peace Conference, he wears the robes of an Arab sheik. Here are, here are Lloyd George and Wilson, Clemenceau, all these people dressed up in their frock coats and so forth. And here's Lawrence dressed like an Arab sheik. Why? Because he wanted to dramatize the cause of the Arabs, that they were being given a raw deal. But two years later, at a conference in Cairo, where they're actually bargaining over lines that are being drawn on the map, he puts on his uniform as a British military officer. Now he wants to get exactly the right lines in the right places. That's an illustration of effective nonverbal communication and contextual intelligence at the same time. Now, in addition to these three soft power skills of emotional intelligence, vision, and communication, an effective leader, male or female, needs two hard power skills. One is organization. And organization, I don't mean simply organigrams on a piece of paper. I mean the ability to manage information flows and reward systems. The ability to make sure that the flows of information are coming in and out in ways that 
are helpful to the leader to understand a situation. One of the uh, important things about leadership is the tremendous corrupting effect of power, what's sometimes summarized as the emperor's clothes syndrome after the famous Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. You know, the courtiers are all told the emperor what brilliant new clothes he had, but uh, it took a little boy who was not a courtier to say, but sir, you're naked. And organizing for a political leader to organize in such a way that there are many flows of information so that he learns exactly the conditions of his garments is very difficult. It's very easy to fall into a situation where your information streams are biased. And that, again, could be illustrated uh, by uh, the two Bush presidencies. If you look at Bush 41, he was an excellent organizer. He had Brett Scowcroft manage his national security process in such a way that multiple streams of information came into him, and he often heard them at the same time to balance them. Eisenhower was another great example of this. If you look at Bush 43, even though he had an MBA, uh, albeit from Harvard Business School, he, uh, he didn't organize that way. What he did, he said that his theory of leadership was to pick good people, delegate to them, provide a vision for them, and leave them alone. The trouble with that is if you don't tend more to spend more time on organizing, you don't know whether your team is actually working as a team or not. And Bush's team clearly didn't. Rumsfeld and Cheney had a second channel, a back channel, which cut Powell out of the stream. And Bush was not getting full flows of information. He was getting a slanted version of information because of the way he organized his presidency. Again, from my earlier point about genetics, these two Bush examples are interesting because in modern times we're never going to find two cases in which the genetics are closer than this and shows that the genetics are not the crucial question. The other hard power skill that a leader, male or female, needs is what I call Machiavellian political skills. That's the ability to size up weaknesses, likes and dislikes of people so that you can put them together to form minimum winning coalitions to get things done. And there, it sometimes involves the politics of fear. It sometimes involves bullying. But there's a difference between bullying, which is usually a counterproductive behavior, and bullying with a vision as the psychologist Rod Kramer at Stanford has called it. If you think about the politics of fear, it works under certain circumstances. Lyndon Johnson was good as this. I shouldn't probably say this in this area, but I'm told that, uh, that uh, Bobby Knight was good at this. Um, but let me cite the example of 
Admiral Rickover. Admiral Rickover was known as the father of the nuclear navy. And he accomplished something really quite remarkable. He produced a nuclear navy without accident. You know, taking this extraordinarily complex technology, putting it in the tight confines of a submarine, living in a very difficult environment, and not having any accidents. The Russians, for example, have had some disastrous accidents. We haven't. Rickover accomplished this. He was also known as a very difficult man to work for. You think, well, you know, is he this tall, inspiring graduate of Annapolis, you know, the swashbuckling sea captain? No, he was a little person, graduated near the bottom of his class in Annapolis, but knew how to set a vision and instill it with create a politics which was bullying and had a vision at the same time. And that vision was a perfect nuclear navy. And what's intriguing is that Rickover was able to get some of the brightest young naval officers to work for him. Not because he was pleasant to work for, because they believed in the vision and that he had the ability and the Machiavellian skills to drive it through. So an effective leader has to have soft power skills and hard power skills. But then the question is, when do you use which? And that's where we come to what I argue in my book is crucial, which is contextual intelligence. And contextual intelligence is the intuitive diagnostic skill of how to align tactics and strategy in different contexts. Context is tremendously important in understanding leadership. Just to give you an illustration, think of Winston Churchill, another person we often talk about as one of the great leaders of the 20th century. If we were in 1940 and we asked, is Winston Churchill one of the great leaders of the 20th century? I suppose it's January 1940. You know what the answer would be? No, this man was a washed-up, failed backbench MP. But if we asked that same question five months later, he was the hero of the day. What made him this great change? Did some trait change? Did Churchill change his ways? No, not at all. What changed was the context. Hitler invaded France, drove British forces into the sea at Dunkirk, and in those conditions, the British people wanted a leader who could rally them as Churchill did. And, of course, the sequel, when the war was won, they voted him out of office because then they wanted somebody who would create a welfare state. He wasn't the right man for that. So context is tremendously important. And leaders, to be effective, have to know how to combine their hard and soft power skills in different measure in different contexts. Witness my T.E. Lawrence that little example. And in that sense, the ability to develop an understanding of culture, and every organization has a culture, of the distribution of power, 
of the changing needs of followers, these are the essential elements of contextual intelligence. And that might best be summed up by uh, something, a quote I saw from Jeff Immelt, who was the head of GE, in which somebody said, how do you know when you're going to decide an issue, and how do you know when you're going to consult and let others decide it? How do you mix your hard command power and your soft, attractive power? And he said, if you run something as complex as GE, said there are about a dozen times a year when I've heard people's views, people are still arguing, but I've heard what I think are all the views, when I just have to say, that's it. We're doing it this way. I'm the CEO. He said, if I did that 18 times, I'd lose my best people. If I did it three times, the company would fall apart. That ability to know the difference between which are the 12, the 18, the 3, that depends upon contextual intelligence. So I think that uh, the key to leadership is not a big man theory or a gender stereotypical reversal of it, but it's to understand the mix of soft and hard power skills in different contexts. Now, to conclude, let me just say a word about how that relates to where I started, which was about America's place in the world. I would argue that we have our leaders and many of our thought leaders, not just political leaders, have not been doing very well in understanding the context of American power. And therefore, we've made some serious mistakes. I mentioned earlier that in 1990, the conventional wisdom was declinism. Paul Sungus ran for president in 1992 on the slogan, the Cold War is over and Japan has won. If you go forward 10 years to 2001, you'll find just the opposite. Instead of declinism, you had triumphalism. You had somebody like Charles Krauthammer, the columnist for the Washington Post, uh, writing in June of 2001 in favor of what he called the new unilateralism. And his point was that America was now so strong in a unipolar world that we could do whatever we wanted and others had no choice but to follow. And that was very much the theme of the first term of the Bush 43 administration. And it was extraordinarily costly. A great misunderstanding of context. If you think of context of power in the world today, you realize that you cannot have a single measure of power or a single set of resources. I've sometimes used the metaphor of a three-dimensional chess game. On the top board of this game, the board of military power among states, the United States is the world's only superpower, and I expect it will remain that way for decades. If you go to the middle board of economic relations among states, the world is multipolar and has been for more than a decade. This is an area where the European Union acts as an entity. 
when Jack Welch, the head of GE, wanted to merge two American companies, GE and Honeywell, the Justice Department of the United States said yes, the European Union said no, and the deal fell apart. It strikes me that's not very unipolar. Uh, so the middle board, multipolarity. The bottom board of this three-dimensional game, the board of transnational relations, things that cross borders outside the control of governments, like climate change or pandemics or transnational terrorism, is chaotically organized. Nobody's in charge. To call this American hegemony or American empire or whatever, or unipolarity, makes no sense at all. And yet many of the largest threats we face are coming from this bottom board. And when we saw in the first term of the Bush administration, Bush 43 administration, people saying because we're a military superpower, we can do whatever we will, as Krauthammer argued, this was a failure to understand the different contexts which produce different power resources in different domains. And then that result, I would submit, was extraordinarily costly for American foreign policy. I think we're beginning to come through this. I think as we develop a discourse about power, which is more refined, which understands that there's soft power as well as hard power, and that effective leaders, both domestically and foreign in foreign policy, need to combine soft and hard power skills in different contexts, we may finally be beginning to get this right. Uh, I personally think that the election of Barack Obama is significant not merely because the election of an African-American has helped to restore the credibility of the American dream and thereby help to recover American soft power in other parts of the world, but because you also have a leader who has quite extraordinary contextual intelligence. If you look at his experience with a, grand, with a father from Kenya, relatives in Kenya, growing up in Indonesia, he has an understanding of what the rest of the world is from the bottom up. And that should serve us well I think, in a world which is becoming far more complex, in which you have to have this kind of contextual intelligence to be able to guide an effective foreign policy. But we're in the early days, and we will see, but at least we're starting off, and I'm concluding this talk on an optimistic note. So thank you very much. Well, the first thing is, of course, to realize that soft power doesn't solve all problems. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, you find very few leaders who rely solely on soft power. I suppose the Dalai Lama might be an example, but most leaders need to combine hard and soft, and most countries need to combine hard and soft. When we tried to uh, persuade the Taliban in the 1990s to 
stopped giving haven to al-Qaeda, uh, it was ineffective, and it was only hard power that, uh, that uh, ended that. Uh, and I don't think soft power is going to solve the problems of North Korea's nuclear weapons and so forth. So sometimes people will say, oh, you think soft power should replace hard power. Uh, I'm making a point, which is that in the mix of power resources, the way the world is changing in an information age, both in terms of business, society, government, and internationally, soft power is going to be a larger portion of the mix. Soft power has always been important. Look at uh, Louis XIV and the use of symbolism to promote French culture to enhance the, the uh, position of France. I mean, that's soft power. Um, but in today's information age, in an age of networks, I would argue that the mix of soft is getting to be more important overall. And I think we've been slow as a country to understand that change of the context and thereby alter our instruments. But I am intrigued. I mean, I thought Gates' speech in 2007 was quite remarkable. You know, finally a Secretary of Defense says, sorry folks, we can't run a foreign policy in which all the resources flow to the Pentagon. You've got to start putting some in the State Department. That was really a big change. So I think we're beginning to get it, but we're not quite there yet. Well, we're, we are still um, very much uh, confused in, by gender stereotypes when we think about the use of power. Many men find a woman in power threatening. Many women feel that they have to adapt their style to forego hard power skills so that they don't seem too tough. Or alternatively, like Margaret Thatcher, they may overdo it the other way. And I think it's still a lot harder for women in politics because of these gender stereotypes, because of the reactions you describe. So it's still not equal. I mean, it's still we're still far from it. Uh, but I think it gradually is changing. I mean, I'm intrigued by the studies that Alice Eagley did that I mentioned earlier, but also by looking at a lot of the management literature, which I read more of than I would otherwise want to in, in writing this book, uh, that you're beginning to see a realization that for effectiveness in running large business organizations, you're going to have to get away from that. That you don't put a woman or two in just to fill your affirmative action quota, that you go for skills, and that what's more, the diversity that women will bring in some of these top management teams gives you a new set of resources. Uh, but we're still a long way. I mean, you know, if you look at 
the number of women CEOs, you look at the number of women political, or say presidents and so forth, we're still a long way from that. But I would expect in the 21st century you were just you were going to see a gradual improvement in those ratios. Slow. <laughs> I want to return to the image of the three boards. It seems to me that you've articulated a theory of leadership or an account of leadership uh, that's drawn from and might work very well on the top two levels of the board. Mm-hmm. So you have complex military and economic problems. And maybe in those situations, top-down solutions where you have a strong leader with specialized intelligence works very well. But then you mentioned that you know the third board is much more complicated, it's much more intricate, it's much more interconnected. And I was wondering how you thought that the leadership uh, theory that you've laid out applies to that third board, where it seems that the problems are so complex that they would undermine any sort of top-down leadership model that we might have drawn from our experiences in the 20th century on the top two boards. Well, I, I've argued, I mean, if I'd had more time, I was already transgressing on what I was being allowed. If I had had more time, I would have made the case that you've got to use more soft power on that bottom board. Words, think, of, think of climate change. Think of pandemics. Think of... Um, transnational terrorism. Military force doesn't solve much of them. In other words, it's, if you ask what instruments, command power, hard power doesn't solve much of them. Um, you've got to attract people. You've got to pull people toward a vision. Uh, you've got to use networks to try to get some of these things solved. So taking transnational terrorism, yes, there are times when you use special forces to track down and kill a, a, an al-Qaeda operative. But a lot of what you need is attracting others to provide the intelligence you need to know where that person is. And you need a lot of soft power resources to create conditions in which the population is not recruitable by those terrorists. So if you think of of the bottom board, um, there's sometimes some hard power resources are relevant, but the soft power mix is going to be much greater on the bottom board than on the other two boards, as I mentioned in, in answer to the earlier question. He actually touched on the question I was going to ask, but let me be more specific. Uh, contextually, especially in the case of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, most of the leaders, I mean, soft power presupposes dialogue, but most of the leaders do not exhibit the capacity to engage in dialogue, which means you cannot really get to them through uh, any kind of discussion that is based on intelligence, and yet foreign policy, economic policy, has to go have to go through these leaders. How how would one apply soft power argument uh, to engage the transnational nature of the politics and relationship at that dead level? Well, your point is well taken because um, if you look at African leaders today, because of the, I think, because of the inherited uh, colonial experience, you have states which are, to some extent, artificial states, and leaders who inherited this structure, and they are a little bit afraid of letting go of that structure in any way, because they don't have other ways of attracting. So. Let's take Kenya, uh, where I or, or Uganda, where I lived and which I know somewhat. Uh, if you let go of the state structure 
and you are a uh, Buganda, you're not sure the Banyan Koli are going to follow you. In fact, they're, they probably won't. And so you need that state structure because you don't have the, the larger communal structure, which gives you uh, an easy way to attract. Um, and so many African uh, leaders are indeed, uh, I'm overgeneralizing, but uh, many African leaders uh, uh, are like Mugabe. They, they had an attractiveness when they were still seen as freedom fighters against white colonists. But they wore through that, and then they have to ask, how do I keep in control? And they essentially use this hard power structure. Uh, I hope, I'd like to believe that over time, Africa will evolve beyond that. It's not intrinsic in African culture. If you go back to traditional African cultures, uh, you know, consultation was a very important part of many African cultures. Soft power is extraordinarily important in some African cultures, traditional cultures. And if you look at a modern African leader like Nelson Mandela, um, he was brilliant at using soft power. But alas, for most African leaders today, they capture a state structure which was built by colonial forces that doesn't have a substrata of basically a common community, and they're afraid to let go of any piece of it because they're afraid that that will be the end. And getting beyond that is going to take some time. I may be, I mean, you can refute me if you, I mean, you, you obviously know. What country are you from? I'm, I'm from Nigeria. Nigeria, okay. Well, then, I mean, if I got that wrong, you tell me. But from my experience of living in Africa, that's, that would be my explanation. So, to a large extent, uh, your, your argument that actually is quite good. The, 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 the question is, for me, more of how do you engage the population who, for all intents and purposes, are trapped within this state structure, which the larger international community, more specifically United States, deal with as states to mm. leaders? Well, it's, it, it's a hard question. Um, part of it is is by engaging civil society. Now, there's a lot of what America needs to do in its foreign policy and public diplomacy. Obviously, we have to deal with states. We have to, you know, we have to go to Abuja and, and deal with foreign ministry and so forth. But the extent to which you deal with civil society and help Nigerian communities build their own civil society, whether it's universities or clinics or schools or health uh, and so forth, it seems to me that's the, the path that would do this. So as you think of American diplomacy and American public diplomacy, it's worth uh, noticing that Secretary Clinton listed development as one of the key instruments in the soft power toolbox. And so I think that's the right way for us to approach it. In terms of the uh, contextualization and recontextualization processes, what do you see uh, in terms of how to increase that capacity in our leadership development institutions? Well, you know, the American military, uh, for 
even though it has its flaws from time to time, uh, has spent a lot of time thinking about this and actually does it fairly well. Uh, they place a tremendous uh, emphasis on education. Indeed, one of the things that's ironic is that the State Department can't take people and send them off to a year at Ohio State uh, the way the military can. Um, you know, David Petraeus was sent to Princeton to do an MA and a PhD, and that affected, I think, his understanding of culture uh, when it came to thinking about strategy in Iraq. Um, what, what the military has is a little um, slogan, the Army in particular, uh, be, no do. Be means understand yourself. Train people to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. No means study history, study theories of leadership, learn what worked and what didn't work for other people. Do means go out and experience, practice, do it, but always do an after-action review, whether successful or not, so that you incorporate the lessons. I think that that means that you can teach contextual intelligence. Now, some people are going to be better than others. I mean, uh, some people can be taught to play the piano reasonable level, but not everybody is going to be an Alicia de la Rocha. You know, so it's, there's a, uh, I mean, certain innate skills matter. But I think the point is that wherever you start, you can move somebody an octave or two higher in terms of developing their leadership skills, and particularly the contextual intelligence. And I think the military has been surprisingly good at this. Well, let me, on the, on the first question on authority, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, there are many sources of attraction. Sometimes being nice attracts. Sometimes authority attracts. Uh, my Rickover case uh, is a point there. Um, there is an, often an aura around somebody in authority which attracts. I don't know if, if you've ever experienced uh, a friend who is a friend who then has a very powerful position and somehow they, there's an additional aura about them and then they leave that powerful position and they're back to just being a friend. So authority uh, can produce soft power resources. I mean, it, it can also produce hard power resources. It can give you the right, let's say, if you're head of a state to say off with his head. I mean, you know, but. But authority, it, it, remember to distinguish resources from behavior when you're thinking about power. A given resource can produce both hard and soft power. I mean, just to illustrate that, the military, we usually think as producing hard power, coercion. 
But when the military was used for tsunami relief in Indonesia, it produced soft power. So a given resource can produce either hard or soft power behavior. And authority is like that. It can produce either one. Um, now, on the point of the uh, uh, does soft power merely uh, create or prolong hegemony, it can be used for that. Uh, and if you're a large power like the United States, the persistence or duration of your uh, preeminence or preponderance is obviously affected by your soft power. Britain in the 19th century, Rome traditionally, all had considerable soft power. I mean, Rome, becoming a Roman citizen was very attractive for people who'd been conquered by Roman legions, which meant they were less likely to revolt if they could become a Roman citizen. So soft power, uh, that can be used to prolong an empire, hegemony, whatever. It's interesting that China today, Hu Jintao, told the 17th Party Congress that we in China need to invest more in our soft power. Well, it's very interesting that, uh, that, you know, that follows the type of example you're giving. But soft power can be used by anybody. Norway has soft power. I mean, it doesn't make Norway an empire or a hegemon, but it does mean that Norway has more power than if it didn't invest as it does 1% 1% of GDP in foreign assistance or didn't play the role of the peacemaker and so forth. So soft power is not just, it can be used for hegemony. It can also be used by other actors for other purposes. It's a, a very interesting question. I wish I understood the answer better. A lot has to do with the framing. Very often you ask uh, public opinion polls in a way in which it's framed as a threat. People want hard power. If you ask public opinion polls like, uh, you know, do you care about whether America is liked or not, then soft power becomes very important. And so, so essentially the public, the American public, is ambivalent. And so the kinds of answers you get on opinion polling uh, is dependent on the framing. And as we all know, when you set polls up, a lot depends not just on the neutrality of the question, or the language in the question, but where the question is set among other questions or other experiences before and after it's asked. So I think, unfortunately, the answer is both. <laughs>
or high on some and low on others because of these sorts of trade-offs? There is a trade-off. There is tension, as you describe, and that's why I place particular emphasis in the book on what I call contextual intelligence, which I go into in much more detail than I could do this morning. Um, because there's a trade-off, then you have to understand how do you adjust the mix in particular circumstances. Um, if you don't do any horse trading, uh, you wind up but like Woodrow Wilson. Um, if you do too much horse trading, you wind up like Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I mean, if the, da the great danger is if people become too cynical about your horse trading, it really undercuts your vision. On the other hand, if you have a vision but don't do any horse trading, you're ineffectual. And understanding when to make the trades, how they'll be perceived, what the costs are, that goes into the contextual intelligence. So you're right, there is a basic dilemma there, which is why the contextual intelligence is, is so important as you try to manage this. No, very. I, I agree with that. Uh, again, I apologize. There are a lot of things I couldn't cover in a short time, but I, I have argued that the crucial resource for a country's soft power tend to be its culture when it's attractive to others, its values when they're applied without uh, hypocrisy, and uh, its policies when they're seen as legitimate. So if you if you have policies at home that are inconsistent with the values you're proclaiming, it leads to cynicism and undercuts your attraction. And many of the actions that were taken by the Bush administration relating to uh, domestic civil liberties as well as torture um, undercut the grandiose rhetoric of the second inaugural address that Bush gave about the progress of liberty and freedom and uh, led to a sense of cynicism. Uh, it was interesting to see uh, not only Clinton make that comment, but in Obama's inaugural address, he made the similar point. Last question. Yes, right here. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I have a uh, related question. Why is that? Uh, maybe religious figures discussing about network and hierarchy. So if network is more important than hierarchy, so. Uh, whether network, uh, network notion can overcome hierarchy because in international context always there's a, there's a competition between great powers that's related to your mention about like soft power notion in China. There are a lot of followers from, from leadership to diplomatic uh, community. So China put a lot of resources uh, uh, to develop its own soft power, particularly in developing World. So, do you see uh, soft power will be a zero-sum conflict in international politics? If, if it is, how we can deal with it? Well, uh, it's a very good question. 
I didn't mean to leave the impression that networks are always more important than hierarchy. They're both important, and the mix will be different in different situations. What I was trying to suggest is that the mix of the two is changing in an information age. As to how it will change in terms of international politics, it's a very interesting article by Anne-Marie Slaughter in the last issue of Foreign Affairs about network power, arguing that the ability of the United States to network is going to actually prolong its power. So I I would urge you to take a a look at that. uh, I tend to agree with much of what she says there. Instantly, she's become director of policy planning for the State Department under Clinton, Hillary Clinton. And um, on the question of is soft power a zero sum, uh, the answer is no. Um, Wang Jisu, who's the dean of the School of Public Policy at uh, Beijing University, and I've just written an article in a book uh, edited by Dick Rosecrans, which I think was published by Public Affairs a week or two ago, in which we look at Chinese and American soft power and the interaction between them. And whether it's soft power or hard power, power need not be a zero-sum game. It depends upon the intentions of the actors. If you and I both want the same outcome, let's say stability in the mid-19th century, uh, the fact that we both have strong defenses and are stable, it mean, it's a positive sum situation. I don't want to invade you. You don't want to invade me. We both want to make sure nobody is going to invade either of us. If you look at Chinese and American soft power today, to the extent that the U.S. uses its soft power to reduce China's position, or China reduces its soft power to reduce America's position, let's say, in Southeast Asia, that's zero sum. The extent to which you think that avoiding a conflict between China and the United States the sort of the Mearsheimer paradigm, which I disagree with, but, but that proje- projection, to the extent that you think that's one of the major problems we face, then the extent to which Chinese soft power grows in the United States and U.S. soft power grows in China and we avoid an unnecessary conflict, that can be joint gain, positive sum. So it, 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 power, it, it's, a, it's a great mistake to think that power always has to be zero-sum. You see this time and again. Depends on the objectives of the actors. David Baldwin's book on power, published, what, 20 years ago or so, was very good on this. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming and ask you to join me in thanking Joe for having put us on his schedule. He's obviously very good. He was in Munich last week and he's on his way out again soon. But he took time to come here, I know, partly because of his connection to Joe, but I really do appreciate you coming out. So thank you. Thank you.